from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Our bodies run with ink-dark blood. Blood pools in the pavement's seams. Is it strange to say love is a language few practice but all or near all speak? Even the men in black armor, the ones jangling handcuffs and keys, what else are they so buffered against if not love's blade sizing up the heart's familiar meat? We watch and grieve. We sleep Stir, eat, love, the heart sliced open, gutted, clean. Love, naked almost, in the everlasting street, skirt lifted by a different kind of breeze. That's Tracy K. Smith reading her poem, Unrest in Baton Rouge, a poem Studio 360 commissioned. It's about the iconic photograph of a woman protesting the police killing of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge two years ago. Which just goes to show that even though a lot of people think poetry is obscure or difficult, it really can be as visceral as a viral news photo. This is National Poetry Month, and today we're featuring a few of our favorite practitioners, such as Tracy K. Smith, since last fall, the U.S. Poet Laureate. She won a Pulitzer Prize six years ago for her book, Life on Mars, which has poems about the cosmos and science fiction, God, evil, a father's death, becoming a mother, and David Bowie. It's on America's her poetry is serious and smart and profound, like poetry is supposed to be, but it doesn't require an advanced degree to read and get and enjoy. I spoke with Smith in 2012, just after she won the Pulitzer, and asked if it's a double-edged sword that her poetry is so often described as accessible. I don't feel offended by it. (laughs) I actually feel happy about it. Like, I'm interested in using language and having fun with what it can do and what it can create. But um, using it as a tool to get toward understanding and insight. And if I'm thinking about something that is mysterious or difficult or complex, I like when the language can be as transparent as possible just to make way for the larger thing. And your project includes the world as we know it and live in it. And there's nothing wrong with... uh, Referring again and again to David Bowie, for instance. (laughs) I gave myself permission many years ago to let anything that is interesting, even mildly important to me as a person, into my work. And around that time, I started realizing, oh, you know, I'm going to let David Bowie in. I'm going to let Frank Zappa. I'm going to let world events that that I had felt were not, quote-unquote, poetic in the past, let them into the work and see what happens. Speaking of David Bowie, I'd love it if you'd read... The first section of the poem, Don't You Wonder Sometimes. Sure. Don't you wonder sometimes. After dark, 
stars glisten like ice, and the distance they span hides something elemental. Not God, exactly. More like some thin-hipped, glittering Bowie being, a star man or cosmic ace, hovering, swaying, aching to make us see. And what would we do, you and I, if we could know for sure that someone was there squinting through the dust, saying nothing is lost, that everything lives on, waiting only to be wanted back badly enough? That was Tracy K. Smith reading from her poem, Don't You Wonder Sometimes, about David Bowie. Was Bowie an obsession of yours when you were a teenager? I remember, uh, gosh, watching some 1980s music videos like Let's Dance. It's not even, I guess, what we now agree as David Bowie's best moment. But as a kid and feeling really engaged by just the sense of his imagination and the freedom. And then as I got older, I became really interested in the the Ziggy Stardust era. I wasn't even a kid, I have to say. I was probably like 30 when I became kind of obsessed with, with that moment. And I think what was so powerful about it to me was the sense of um, the imagination as something that is capable of creating a whole new world and a whole new sense of, of self. And I really have always just been so grateful to that. And I wanted at some point to find a way of writing toward that in my uh-huh. work, acknowledging that. A, a big section of this book deals with your father's death a few years ago. Um, you write, who were we without your clean profile nicking away at anything that made us afraid? What was your dad like? My father was, um, when I was growing up as a child, I, I thought of him as larger than life. I thought of him as this Renaissance man who could do anything. He was a scientist. Uh, he was an engineer. Yeah. Um, and he was deeply interested in the world and how things worked and grew and transformed. And he, he loved making furniture and he, you know, grew trees from seeds because he was curious about what would happen. It's like a dad in a movie or something. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I have very sweet memories of him. And when I got older, um, he became human in a way that was really wonderful. We became friends in a way. Would you read one of the poems about him, the one called It's Not? Sure. It's not that death was thinking of you or me or our family or the woman our father would abandon when he died. Death was thinking what it owed him, his ride beyond the body, its garments, beyond the taxes that swarm each year, the car and its fuel injection, the fruit trees heavy in his garden. Death led him past the aisles of tools, the freezers lined with meat, the television saying over and over, seek and ye shall find. So why do we insist he has vanished, that death ran off with our everything worth having? Why not that he was swimming only through this life, his slow, graceful crawl, shoulders rippling, legs slicing away at the waves, gliding further into what life itself denies. He has only gone so far as we can tell, though when I try, I see the white cloud of his hair in the distance like an eternity. That's Tracy K. Smith reading It's Not from her new book, Life on Mars. He, was, he worked on, on the Hubble telescope, yes, which was, has obviously been sort of one of the big deals, the big deal in observational astronomy the last several decades. Um, how did that, having a father who did that, uh, 
sort of shape your view of existence? To be really honest with you, when, when he was working on the Hubble, I was eight years old. I um, became really interested in looking at these images after he passed away uh-huh. and somehow— The images that the Hubble has captured. Oh, yeah. And, and, and then I could remember moments of—I remember the first book that he uh, received— with some of those images in them and, and him showing them to me and telling me this is, you know, this is what, what I was able to help, you know, contribute to. And maybe it, it's taken that many years for that to really register for me. And he's an engineer. You're a poet. Are those such different ways of thinking about the world? Did they lead to differences between you, you as father and daughter? Well, um, I remember my father, although I never read one of the poems that he supposedly wrote when he was young, my mother would always tell me that when they were courting one another, my father would send her love poems that he had written. Um, and I always felt like, okay, there's this kernel of of um, connectedness that he and I share, even though we veered in these very different directions. How, how did you start reading, caring about, and then writing poetry? I guess there are all of these different starting points. The earliest one I can remember is grade school, writing a poem, and um, feeling wise. But when I was in college, I was lucky enough to be exposed to a lot of living poets. Uh, I was at Harvard in the early 90s, and Seamus Heaney taught there, and Lucy Brock Broido and Henri Cole were other really important teachers that I had. And, you know, I would, I would see that poets were people who ordered meals and, you know, wore shoes and, and did all the things. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. And it seemed like something that I could imagine doing right then instead of waiting until I was at the end of my life. Although it also, I can, I, one can imagine, okay, thinking, on the other hand, I'm an undergraduate. I'm, I'm just, I, this is just a thing. This is an undergraduate folly, fancy. But you didn't have that. You said, no, I can actually do this. When I look back, it's probably it, it feels a little pretentious. I remember I, I chose to declare that I was a poet, I, I, and I remember my roommates at the time being so annoyed because I would say, <laughs> "I can't go out. I need to. I need to work on my poems. I need to stay home." But for me, I think what was happening was I was I was discovering a language for articulating some of those feelings that are normally inarticulable for somebody who's in, you know late adolescent. Tracy, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. Tracy's new book of poems, Wade in the Water, is out right now. After hearing her Bowie-inspired poem a few years ago, we challenged our listeners to write poems about the rock stars and other cultural figures who they adored. More than 150 listeners sent in poems about everybody from Freddie Mercury to Andy Warhol to Beyonce. Tracy K. Smith returned to serve as our contest judge and announced the winner— But first, I asked her to pick a runner-up. Well, I had a lot of interest in a poem by Carol Alexander from New York City. And it's a poem about Janis Joplin called Port Arthur Girl. Because Janis Joplin was from Port Arthur, Texas. I know that. Uh, Can you read a little bit of uh, Carol Alexander's poem about Janis Joplin? Sure. Down around Port Arthur, the tumbleweed, that mobile diaspore, flings its seeds in a race with time, dying in a pool of rain or oil. And what they have is a lot of sky and oil tanks coddling crude and girls in much more underwear than they wear way up north. Mining land is deeply scarred and raw, 
the gravel pits alien, like lunar landscapes, or the bank where Karen plies his trade. The young ones necking in their cars, the ugly bars, showed you the rocking road away from that stripped coastal town. Well, that's lovely. It is, yeah. I was really impressed. There's some beautiful um, images in here, and she creates a really palpable sense of place. And the words and images like the oil and the diaspora and the tumbleweeds that recur also create a really kind of musical space within the poem. So that was the runner-up. And our winner is? Our winner is Matthew Roth from Raleigh, North Carolina, who wrote a poem to Justin Timberlake. Well, before we call him to tell him he's won, could you just give us a sample of the poem that impressed you so much? Sure. To Justin Timberlake. J.T. steps out of the studio backwards. He slides in a borrowed slipshod soft shoe from MJ. He dizzies his hip shift and doffs his cap, which may or may not be a prop. From the doorway, Timbaland arms crossed, head nods, bubbling his best Quincy Jones. They skip down the street for tacos. Justin shows Timbo his phone, cracking up. He is crying on punked from his palm, or decked all in denim with that damn BS. There's a lot of great swagger in the language here, and there's a moment where he is reverberating through school bus and dorm room, heads bobbing over homework across deserts and cornfields, muddy rivers and sinks full of soap. Well, let's uh, let's call Matthew and tell him he's won. Hello? Is that Matthew Roth? Uh, hello, yes. Hi, this is Kurt Anderson at Studio 360. Hi, Kurt. How are you? I'm good. And and thanks so much for, for entering this, this Pop Idol Ode contest. We got almost 200 entries. I know. There were a lot of good ones. And you're the winner. Oh, wow. Thank and, you. And, and Tracy K. Smith, who anointed you, is here with me uh, as well. Hi, Matthew. Con- well, hello, Tracy. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you so much. So you're you're this adult person writing about your love for Justin T- Timberlake. That was kind of brave, I guess. I mean, I, I should say I'm a young adult. Um, I'm about I'm 26, so I kind of grew up with Justin Timberlake. And and Tracy, what 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 did you like about the poem? Well, I was really drawn in by the sense of um, music that's in the language. You know, there's slipshod, soft shoe, and the little scene that you sketch of, of Justin Timberlake and Timbaland was something that I just thought was so so of this moment and such a wonderful depiction of these pop pop stars. And Matthew, what do you do when you when you're not writing poems about Justin Timberlake? <laughs> Actually, I negotiate contracts for pharmaceutical companies. Really. Is, is is Justin Timberlake somebody you've spent time thinking about before this reason to think about him came along? Actually, yeah, I, I kind of had found myself um, thinking about this, and I realized that um, my experience of listening to and thinking about Justin Timberlake uh, kind of evolved from when I was first aware of you know NSYNC in middle school and just totally re- reviled by it and just you know <laughs> kind of <laughs> that was just such a polished poppy, some, nothing that I wanted to be associated with. And then kind of uh, when I heard, you know, Crimea River, it just seemed to be so, um, you know, undeniably good. And I, I think that the process of realizing that there's nothing ironic about the fact that I love Justin Timberlake's music uh, has kind of been a, a big part of me uh, coming to terms of uh, a, lot of, a lot of ways that I relate to culture and, and the world around me. 
I think that tension comes across really nicely at the end of the poem as well. You ask, how has your dumb stubble charmed me so? Yeah. Matthew, thanks so much. Thank you so much. This is a treat. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for, for doing this. Thanks. Thank you. You can hear our friend, the Pulitzer Prize-winning Poet Laureate, reading those two poems by our listeners, Carol Alexander and Matthew Roth, at our website, pri.org slash studio360. Coming up, the great American poet. I celebrate myself and what I assume you shall assume, for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. But even Walt Whitman had his critics. In fact, especially Walt Whitman. The man who wrote page 79 of The Leaves of Grass deserves nothing so richly as the public executioner's whip. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Nobody knows for sure, but this might be the voice of a 70-ish Walt Whitman on a wax cylinder recording from around 1890, reading his poem, America. America, center of equal daughters, equal sons, all, all alike and do, grow, ungrow. It's hard to hear. He calls America a center of equal daughters, equal sons. And he captured us the way we like to see ourselves. Strong, ample, fair, enduring, capable, rich. No poet ever loved this country more than Walt Whitman. It's a love that in the poems can sometimes get a little uncomfortable. For our series on American icons, we asked reporter and poet Sean Cole why he so loves Whitman back. This is a facsimile of the first edition. Oh, wow. T. Hunter Wilson is the guy who first turned me on to Leaves of Grass. He was my poetry professor at Marlboro College in Vermont. And yes, he and I are such Whitman geeks, we can even get excited about a facsimile. It's almost an exact duplicate of the original. It's about 8 by 12, something like that. 8 by 10. So there's a kind of even visual generosity to it. But it's slim and hardbound, like a high school yearbook. It covers a deep green. This was the first of about seven editions of Leaves of Grass Whitman published. Instead of putting out new books, he just kept adding poems to this one and re-editing it and re-releasing it with the same title. This first version came out on or around July 4th, 1855. Fitting, because when Leaves of Grass first landed on bookstore shelves in Brooklyn and Boston, it was like another American revolution had started, a poetic one. Except no one was sure at first who started it because there was no name on the title page. It just says Leaves of Grass, Brooklyn, New York, and opposite that, a picture. Oh, there he is. Uh, That's not what a 19th century author is supposed to look like. This is a hayseed. This is (laughs) slightly baggy pants standing with hand cocked on his hip, his hat pushed back, looking sort of as if... He's about to say, well, that's an interesting point of view. Whitman put only 12 poems in the first edition. Long ones, but 12. And none of them had titles yet. He makes his intentions plain in the preface. The United States themselves are essentially the greatest poem, he says. And its people, 
the way they talk and carry themselves, their candor. These, he says, are unrhymed poetry. It awaits the gigantic and generous treatment worthy of it, which is what the following 81 pages are supposed to be. I celebrate myself and what I assume you shall assume. For every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul. Leaves of Grass would ultimately become what Whitman wanted it to be, American poetry's Bible, its origin story. I sound my barbaric yawp over the roofs of the world. And some of his fans these days are as devout as religious followers. Do you take it? I would astonish. Does the daylight astonish? Every year, dozens of them gather by the East River in Brooklyn and recite the poem that came to be called Song of Myself into a microphone. I went to the 10th annual reading. What is a man, anyhow? It featured a famous poet named Martine Espada. I celebrate myself and what I assume you shall assume. For every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. Houses and well, I think I was first introduced to Whitman uh, at high school age, and I didn't understand what he was saying. And so I put Whitman aside and many years later came to Whitman on my own. And it was as if I had discovered the source uh, of my poetry, to be sure, and uh, so much other poetry that I loved and admired. By poets like Pablo Neruda and Allen Ginsberg. Only, unlike them, Whitman didn't have Whitman before him as an influence. And as far as Martina Spada is concerned, Whitman wasn't just ahead of his time. He's ahead of our time. Uh, Whitman was a visionary, and we, in many ways, as a society, are not ready for Whitman. We're not ready for his radical egalitarianism. I am not the poet of goodness only. I do not decline to be the poet of wickedness also. We're not ready for his sexuality. Morning, how you settled your head athwart my hips and gently turned over upon me. We're not ready for Whitman. Or we break off whatever chunk of his book we think we can use. Folks who go to him for the pro-democracy stuff might ignore the gay parts. Or, in claiming him, the gay community might slough off the really graphic hetero parts. Like Whitman says in the book, he contains multitudes. He was also one of the multitudinous working throng. Unlike the popular poets at the time, William Cullen Bryant, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Whitman didn't go to college. He didn't even go to high school. One of the things to keep in mind about Whitman and one of the things I find charming, as it were, about him is that his formal education ended about age 11. Kenneth Price teaches English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and co-edits an online Whitman archive. He says Whitman got his real education from newspapers, working for them, I mean, setting type and then later reporting. Words were passing in front of his eyes all the time. And he also had a kind of sponge-like memory. And so he, he would pick up high learning and quackery, pseudoscience and real science. And would he just then mix all those things sort of together in his brain into one mush and then... Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, Emerson famously said that the Leaves of Grass was a combination of the Bhagavad Gita and the New York Herald. And <laughs> <laughs> Ralph Waldo Emerson, that is. And he 
pretty much nailed it. Emerson was an early fan of Whitman's, which makes sense. Years earlier, Emerson had published an essay saying, we need a truly authentic American poet for once. And Whitman read that essay and said to himself, I will be that poet. T. Wilson, my poetry professor. And so Emerson's enthusiasm is a little like catching a view of himself in a mirror and not quite realizing that that handsome fellow is himself. (laughs) Right, of course he liked it. (laughs) And at the time, Whitman needed all of the support he could get. Some of the really uh, negative reviews uh, urged him to commit suicide or they said that he ought to be publicly whipped. The quote is even better than that. It says, We who are not prudish emphatically declare that the man who wrote page 79 of The Leaves of Grass deserves nothing so richly as the public executioner's whip. Let's just say page 79 is literally climactic. But Whitman was just getting started. Some of the later work was way more explicit. Explicit enough to have had Emerson have second thoughts and sort of walk through the Boston Common with him saying, you know, Walt, I don't know that you really ought to... Couldn't you take that out? You don't really need that in there. Oh, is that what they were talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, you'd think Emerson would be worried about the homoerotic poems, but the man-on-man love in Leaves of Grass is so soft focus and handholdy, you really can't tell what's going on. Now, what Emerson was concerned about was a sequence of poems called Children of Adam, which is all about procreative love between men and women. I read through part of it with Ken Price, and I feel weird saying this since we're talking about 19th century American poetry, but if you have kids in the room, this may not be appropriate. Okay, here's me with Ken. It is I, you women. I make my way. I am stern, acrid, large, undissuadable, but I love you. I do not hurt you any more than is necessary for you. I pour the stuff to start sons and daughters fit for these states. I press with slow, rude muscle. I brace myself effectually. I listen to no entreaties. I dare not withdraw till I deposit what has so long accumulated within me. Through you, I drain the pent-up rivers of myself. Yeah. It gets pretty close to being like a rape scene. Rape scene, yeah. And and that (laughs) rightly troubles people. Yeah. You know, I think this is not one of Whitman's best moments, and it should be criticized. To me, the most uh, logical explanation is that when he's talking about relationships between men and women, he's he's really entirely imagining it. It's not something based on personal experience. But what's fascinating about that is he's using his muscle to start the new republic. Betsy Urkula is a Whitman scholar at Northwestern University and author of a book called Whitman, the Political Poet. It's more almost a fantasy about the role of the poet in creating the democracy of the future, the kind of planting the seeds, pressing with the seeds that are going to that are going to produce the democracy of the future. That is, the straight sex in the book isn't sex so much as a metaphor for Whitman's political ideals, at least in this case. And in her book, Betsy Urkula argues that the source of Whitman's seemingly out of the blue inspiration was political right down to the new poetic form he invented, that long, unmetered line he's known for. I always like to say he broke the pentameter. He broke the pentameter. What does and that, that mean? Was, this is the, uh, the line of Shakespeare. Oh, I see. And the, the line that our language in some ways naturally scans so it's in. it's like da 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 Exactly. So my mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. 
whereas with Whitman, there was no set number of beats per line. That was his real innovation. And Betsy says there's this one particular moment where he broke the pentameter, one passage in a notebook dated 1847. He's writing about the kind of poet he wants to become. It's amazing because you see him kind of writing, this is what the poet will do, and this is my image, and, and then you see him break into what would become this major poetic revolution, this free verse. And where he breaks is at the lines, I am the poet of slaves. And of the masters of slaves, I am the poet of the body, and I am... And then breaks off. Literally, he breaks off mid-sentence there, stops, and then tries again. I am the poet of the body, and I am the poet of the soul. I go with the slaves of the earth, equally with the masters, and... I will stand between... The masters and the slaves. How fascinating that this major break in poetry worldwide comes over one of the most pressing political issues of the moment, right, that, that was threatening to tear the Union apart. And ultimately, that poem, though not exactly as he initially wrote it, went into Leaves of Grass. I am the poet of the body, and I am the poet of the soul. The pleasures of heaven are with me, and the pains of hell are with me. The first I graft and increase upon myself, the latter I translate into a new tongue. I am the poet of the woman, the same as the man. And I say it is as great to be a woman as to be a man. And I say. And once he discovered the line, once he made that breakthrough, he did something so incredibly modern that we usually only associate it with poets 100 years after him. Like William Burroughs, for example. William S. Burroughs, Brian Geisen, you know. Matt Miller is a poet and a teacher at Yeshiva University in New York. And he wrote a book called Collage of Myself, Walt Whitman and the Making of Leaves of Grass. If you look at this. Holy cow. You can see these are each individual strips of paper. And there's more than one. What he's showing me is a scanned image of an original Whitman draft. But each of the lines looks like it was snipped with scissors from somewhere else and glued into place. You can actually see the glue stains here and there. According to Matt, Leaves of Grass is a word collage, a cut-up. Well, his number one source was his own text, Mm -hmm. but it comes from writing that was not originally conceived of as poetry. Prior to 1847, he published some juvenilia, some Early, not very good poems. Not very good poems. Not They don't look like Whitman poems. A lot of them are very conventional, short-lined, sometimes even rhyming poems. Um, but aside from those poems, he wrote prose. He wrote notes. He wrote in the margins of other books. He wrote letters and all of these things, book reviews. All of these things wound up becoming leaves of grass, wound up getting cut up, stirred up, mixed up, reformulated, sometimes revised, sometimes not, sometimes just moved around. And um, I think Whitman invented that. Whitman published the first edition himself and controlled every part of the process. He even laid the type on the printer himself. He put out 795 copies, most of them sold. The second edition, which was a run of 1,000 copies, did not do as well. For the third edition, he had an actual publisher, Thayer and Eldridge in Boston. They went bankrupt a year later. The book never really took off during his life. Whitman once wrote that from a commercial standpoint, it was worse than a failure. 
In the fourth edition, the book took a turn. This was in 1867, so just a couple years after the Civil War, during which time he famously tended to injured soldiers in Washington, D.C. And he documents that work and a lot of the darkness of the war in this version of the book. The Wound Dresser is, is the poem. Again, Ken Price. And, and lines from the Wound Dresser poem are etched into the top of the DuPont Circle metro station in Washington, D.C. Is that right? Yeah. And here I am, and the quote is etched into this wall that sort of sweeps around the escalators in a semicircle. You actually have to get on the escalator to read the whole thing. It says, Thus in silence, in dreams, projections, returning, resuming, I thread my way through the hospitals. The hurt and the wounded I pacify with soothing hand. I sit by the restless all the dark night. Some are so young. Some suffer so much. I recall the experience, sweet and sad. Which is beautiful. And I went back and looked at that poem again in the book, and these are the two lines that come immediately after that passage. Many a soldier's loving arms about this neck have crossed and rested. Many a soldier's kiss dwells on these bearded lips. Like Martina Spada said, we're not ready for Whitman in a lot of ways. Those two lines will probably not be chiseled into a building anytime soon. There's a lot more to the story. Leaves of Grass got Whitman fired from a government clerk job. It was banned in Boston, but as always, banning it just meant lots more sales later on. And he was publicly lauded during his life by the folks who recognized his genius. Overall, though, America just didn't love him as much as he loved it. Still, at the end of the final, final version of the book that came out the year he died, in a wistful, bittersweet essay that caps the whole project, Whitman wrote, I have had my say entirely my own way. What could be more American than that? Sean Cole produced our story in 2013. Studio 360's American Icons is funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. You can listen to dozens more of our American Icons stories at pri.org slash studio360. And if you want to hear brand new Studio 360 stories and conversations, there's a new way to do that as well. We're now releasing an extra podcast episode every other Tuesday. To make sure you get them all fresh out of the oven, subscribe to Studio 360 on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Much have I traveled in the realms of gold and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been, which bards in fealty to Apollo hold. That is the one poem I know by heart. It's only 14 lines, a sonnet. On first looking into Chapman's Homer by John Keats from 200 years ago. About his reading a translation from 200 years before that of poetry from a couple of 3,000 years before that, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Today on Studio 360, we are celebrating poetry, great American poetry. 
The limelight that American culture gives to poets these days is fairly limited, so winning the National Book Award for poetry is a big deal, as is being named a MacArthur genius. Terrence Hayes has done both of those, and in 2014, he was also named one of People Magazine's Sexiest Men Alive. So, the Triple Crown. When I spoke with him in 2015, I asked which of those awards was most surprising to him. I don't know. I, uh, which was the most embarrassing? I can, I can answer I bet that I know question. the answer to that. <laughs> I, I guess I would say in, in a really general way, um, art is not the kind of thing where you get what you put into it all the time. So I just I learned to not expect anything other than the sort of joy of having a poem right. in front of me. right. You grew up in South Carolina in the 1970s and 80s, and I've read that you said that race, when you were growing up there, did not seem like much of an issue at all. And and you went to a school uh, that was mostly white kids. Why was race not an issue? Well, I mean, if I frame it in terms of saying that I was a basketball player and a I won't say track star, but I ran track. Right. And and I was a, a visual artist. So the sort of anonymous black kid, I think, would have had a completely different experience uh-huh. than I did. But I was sheltered. I mean, I was a good student as well. And so there were just ways that people knew where to put me, uh, whether they were going to put me in, oh, there's Terrence, he's the basketball player, or there's Terrence, he did the school T-shirts and the school mascots. So ironically, it was only when I came north, and I I was sure that coming north, you know, I just, it didn't even occur to me that there would be issues. But I got north, and I certainly realized suddenly that I wasn't a student, and that when people saw me on the street, they had other kinds of ideas about me. And so I think the, there's a poem in my first book called Shaft in the Enchanted Shoe Factory, which mm-hmm. is just really about an experience I had going to buy a pair of shoes and just sort of having a really strange time with uh, the shoe salesman, which I now understand to have been a kind of like racial tension. But at the time, I was just constantly trying to figure out what was going on. I thought it was the weather. Like, is it just the snow? People are upset because of the weather. But, you know, uh, I I came to understand what it was. One of the poems in the new book uh, called Portrait of Etheridge Knight in the Style of a Crime Report is about the late poet Etheridge Knight, who was a junkie and a robber and a convict Mm -hmm. before he became a poet. And he's best known for his book called um, Poems from Prison. I'm wondering, what what drew you to Knight and and when? The first poet I met when I was in college, it so happened, was a really good friend of Etheridge Knight's, this, this poet named Fran Quinn, who still lives in Indianapolis. And... So no one knew I wrote. I was a basketball player. I was majoring in fine arts and actually taking chorus at the time, but I I stopped that pretty quickly. Chorus? But, yeah, so no one knew about that especially. So my teacher put us in his office. We met. We talked. He asked me what poems I liked. And I, I did like Etheridge Knight because, you know, both my parents were prison guards. And so when I read his poems, I was instantly intrigued in his subject matter. And so Fran said to me then, would you like to meet Etheridge Knight? And he invited me to Indianapolis over Christmas break. And I said, yeah. And then when the time came, I I sort of backed out because I thought my parents aren't going to let me go see an ex-con. I don't even know this white man who was inviting me. And then I had a basketball tournament. And so I I didn't go. I had his number. um, I said maybe over the summer. And then Etheridge died in March. So I I never got to meet him. Um, 
you know, he's sort of been a ghost, you know, the right. almost relationship. But the poems are also, you know, quite impressive. And in fact, every other book, I only realized this with this book, every other book has an Etheridge Knight poem in it. So my first book did, had a poem riffing on one of his popular poems, uh, As You Leave Me. And then my third book, Wind in a Box, has a poem called The Blue Etheridge. And now this book also has a poem. So that wasn't deliberate, but he's always, you know, on my mind. Another great African-American writer who's obviously on your mind is Ralph Ellison. He's the subject of one of my favorite poems in this book. It's called How to Draw an Invisible Man. Um, Would you read it for us? Sure. So this one is, it's Ralph Ellison, and the scenario is just uh, what would happen if if you were Ralph Ellison's mortician or coroner, I guess. And then when Ralph Ellison's corpse burst open— I discovered his body had been hoarding all these years a luscious slush, a sludge of arterial words, the raw and unsaid pages with their plots and propositions, with their arcs of intention and babbling, with their mumbling streams and false starts and their love and misanthropic thrusts, tendons of syntax unraveled from his bones and intestinal cavities, the froth of singing, stinging, stinking ink, Reams of script fraught with the demons, demagogues, and demigods of democracy, demographies of vague landscapes, passages describing muddy river bottoms and elaborate protagonists crawling through a foliage greener than money in America before America thought to release anyone from its dream. The waterlogged monologues, one who is unseen speaks, burst suddenly from Ralph Ellison's body. And because I mean to live transparently, I am here, bear with me, describing the contents, the fictions envisioned by Emerson and immigrants, the dogmas, aboriginal progeny, scholastic recriminations, dementia, jubilee, hubris in Ralph Ellison, Duke Ellington's shadow, a paragraph on the feathered headdress of Marcus Garvey. Some of it was pornography. Some of it alluded to Negroes who believe educating black kids means teaching them to help white people feel comfortable. Some of it outlined the perks of invisibility, how we are obliged to eschew the zoo, the farm animals. It had something to do with captivity, flayed in the clinical light. The notes printed on the underside of his flesh were reversed, but readable, mirrored in the metal of the medical table. And I wanted to print it all properly in a posthumous book in the name of prosperity and proof the genius we believed he'd wasted had been waiting all these years for a simple death sentence to break free. That's Terrence Hayes reading his poem, How to Draw an Invisible Man. Invisible Man, um, of course, the novel by Ralph Ellison, was taught to me when I was in school as the great African-American novel. I'm wondering if you feel at all being a black American man growing up when you did, if you are in any sense invisible? Well, you know, this is in the poem. And, you know, the the great thing about being a poet, obviously, is that many of these questions, you know, if I've had these questions, they've shown up in the poems. So the thing that I've decided is that I don't want to be invisible, but I'd like to be transparent. And so that means I want people to sort of see what I'm thinking and see through me but I don't want to be invisible. And so that's sort of a, a play on words, but it certainly is how I sort of I get that. live my life. And it's how I come to you know come to terms with the notion of invisibility. I'm not threatened by it. I'm not concerned by it. I, I don't think I ever was really. You know, I'm about 6'6". Six, six. 
So, you know, I don't, I don't have trouble walking into a room. And <laughs> yeah. I would prefer to be more invisible, in fact, than I am. Yeah. So it wasn't that kind of problem. Right. A lot of your poems are, are musical, not just in the way the words sound, but also you reference music and musicians a lot. In the new book, there's a poem that quotes the song His Pain, which is the song we're hearing now by B.J. the Chicago Kid featuring Kendrick Lamar. turned around and found a hundred dollars. I don't know why he keep blessing me. 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 I don't know why, I don't know why. I'm wondering if you would read a little bit of your poem, The Carpenter Ant, which quotes from that song. Sure, let's see. Uh... It was when or because she became two kinds of mad, both a feral nail biting into a plank and a deranged screw cranking into a wood beam, the aunt, I shouldn't say her name, went at the fullest hour of the night, the moon there like an unflowered bulb in a darkness like mud or covered in darkness as a bulb or skull is covered in mud, the small brown aunt who, before she went mad, taught herself to carpenter and unhinged in her madness the walls she claimed were bugged with tiny red-eyed devices planted by the state or Satan's agents, ghosts of atheists, her foes, or worse, the walls were full of the bugs she believed crawled from her former son-in-law's crooked mouth, the aunt, Who knows, as all creatures know, you have to be rooted in something tangible as wood if you wish to dream in peace. Took her hammer with its claw like a mandible to her own handmade housing, humming, I don't know why God keeps blessing me, softly, madly, and I understood I was with her when the pallbearers carried a box made of mahogany from her church to a hearse to a hole in the earth. It made me think of the carpenter ant who carries within its blood an evolved self-destructive property and on its face mandibles twice the size of its body and can carry on its back, as I have seen on TV, a rotted bird or branch great distances to wherever the queen is buried, kingdom animalia, phylum arthropoda, tribe camponotini, The species that lives on wood is, like mud, rain, and time, the carpenter's enemy. Yes, but I would love to devour the house I live in until it is a permanent part of me. I would love to shape as Paruntachan, the master sculptor, carpenter, and architect of India, is said to have shaped a beautiful tree into the coffin in which I am to be buried. I know whatever we place in a coffin, the coffin remains empty. I know nothing buried is buried. I don't know why God keeps blessing me. I don't know why God keeps blessing me. So from from Kendrick Lamar to Ralph Ellison to Marcus Garvey and there's Sylvia Plath elsewhere, you, you, you have a very wide uh, radius of influence. Sure. I mean, the, the parallel would be music. When I think about the, you know, between Monk and Chopin and Jimi Hendrix and I like Jango those. Reinhardt. I like all of those guys. Sure, sure. And Matt Most, you know, we can go yeah. electronic music, burial. Uh, I think music is a great sort of 
marker for me in terms of breadth, in terms of reading as broadly and being as generous with poems and other poets as I am with music. Um, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much. Thanks, thanks. It was a joy. Terrence Hayes' How to Be Drawn is available everywhere. And his new book, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin, comes out in June. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our show was mixed this week by... Whitney Jones. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. R.I. Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. Poetry seemed useless in the context of actual annihilation. Phil Elvram didn't have much use for metaphors after his wife died. So I felt like all I am allowed to talk about is what I know for sure to be true, which is breakfast. A surprisingly lively conversation with the Mount Erie singer-songwriter. Next time on Studio 360.